Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle Radio's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... It's a realisation, actually, of the economics of cars are not very positive that tends to drive sustained change. This week, we top up the Urbanist bookshelf with two recent releases that have caught our eye. We speak to the author behind Carmageddon, which outlines the negative effects that cars have had on our built environments and suggests some of the ways that we might be able to fight back against the automobile. And we explore public spaces in a new book looking at how parks, squares, streets and markets can help contribute to a flourishing urban environment. That's all coming up over the next 30 minutes right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. First today, we take on the automobile. Carmageddon weighs up the costs of cars in our cities, from the environmental impacts to the encroachment on our street space to the countless injuries and deaths they have caused. But it's not all bad. The book explores some cities that might have found some good lessons to teach the rest of the world too. I'm joined now by the book's author, Daniel Knowles. Daniel, thank you for being on the show today. Can we start with a little bit about your backstory and what led you to putting this book together? I've been a journalist for about 12 years now, and I've been very lucky in that, you know, I've worked for The Economist most of the time, and they've sent me to live all around the world. And I lived in Kenya and in Mumbai and in Washington, D.C., and now here in Chicago and lived in London for a long time, too. And I think I've kind of been long obsessed with transport systems and how cities work. And that's always been the kind of focus of my writing. And funnily, living in in Kenya and Mumbai was this realization that, you know, the number of cars on the road is growing all over the world. It's kind of everywhere and congestion and, and traffic pollution. These are sort of things that actually apply in cities all over the world. More and more people live in cities. And particularly when I lived in Nairobi and I lived in Mumbai and I traveled around Africa, you saw kind of more and more cars coming onto the roads. And cities kind of clogging up and it becoming a big problem for their sort of growing prosperity. And, you know, and then living in place in London, you'd see kind of, you know, I I got around by bike and I began to kind of notice cars everywhere. I, I think you become kind of blind to them because there are so many in our cities that you almost filter them out. But once you notice how much space they take up and how much they kind of influence, you know, what our cities look like, how we get around, what our lives are like, you kind of can't stop seeing them and thinking about them. And so that sort of happened to me. And I went a bit bit insane, really, just thinking about cars all the time, thinking about how roads and building and how they influence everything. So that was sort of the origin of the book. And then I started writing it when COVID-19 first arrived and it's kind of locked down in London. And for the first time, the streets were so quiet. You could go walking and it was calm. I mean, it was obviously a terrible time in many ways, but the quiet of not having traffic everywhere was one of the kind of silver linings. So I began to think, you know, this can change. And so that's when I started writing the book and it took me about two years from beginning to end and, and now it's out. The title gives a hint of what you think of the car and what it's done to us. But perhaps you could paint a picture for listeners why you feel that the car, especially in an urban setting, has been such a disaster. 
So I think it's essentially a collective action problem. I think kind of if you are the one person who has a car, having a car is this fantastically convenient way of getting around, takes you from A to B, and kind of your individual seats are comfortable. But when everybody has a car, or even you know a small or modest minority of people have a car in some cities, the amount of land that they are using up to move around, the kind of congestion that they cause, the pollution that they cause, the noise. They're not a good way of getting around anymore. Once lots of people have them, people who have to drive in, you know, heavy traffic to work every day, you know, it makes them miserable. There are good kind of studies about the mental health effects of different types of commuting, and driving is really, you know, the most unpleasant kind of minute by minute. Even sort of riding a bus, you know, is generally people much prefer it if it's kind of for an equivalent amount of time spent traveling. Walking or cycling is far more popular, but we've got ourselves into this situation where, in most of the world's cities, you sort of are forced to have a car. You kind of need to have a car because our cities are so spread out; they have become kind of dominated by a car, and it makes other forms of transportation not really possible, not viable in a lot of cases, or or much worse in other places. So, cars kind of ultimately they make us worse off. They obviously. At the moment, you know, they're adding a huge amount to our kind of global carbon footprint, and that's a growing problem.、Uh, and the numbers just keep growing. You know, we might think if you're in London or Paris or somewhere like that, that kind of cars are in decline. That my argument's already been won. But in most of the world, the developing world, especially, but large parts of America, large parts even of Europe, the number of cars is growing, and people are sort of forced to rely on them. You know, more than ever. I guess the stories of Jane Jacobs and people like Robert Moses, even having a Broadway play about his antics, have become better known, and we we know more now about the early years of lobbying by the car companies and things. But your book makes clear that this wasn't by accident that the car took over, especially in U.S. cities. That there were there were forces at play to make sure that the car won out in any battle. Yeah, the stuff that I found most interesting in the research actually was reading. You know, a bit earlier than the kind of Jane Jacobs and Robert Moses period. You know, looking at the beginning of the 20th century and the interwar years in particular. You know, when cars really first started arriving on the roads in in the UK, there was actually this kind of tremendous backlash. You know, the wind in the willows was sort of from this era where suddenly people were really complaining. You know, standing up in Parliament about the super rich sort of motoring on country lanes and making them impossible to use for ordinary people. And in the 1920s, 1930s, and American cities, you know, as cars really took off in number, there was this tremendous backlash. There were these huge sort of war memorial-style parades in memory of children who had been killed by cars, and this real attempt to restrict speeds of cars where they were able to go. And there was a quite forceful sort of lobbying effort by a group that called itself. The word they called themselves was Motordom, but it was kind of composed of particularly auto dealerships, also wealthy people who owned cars and kind of you know belonged to car clubs and various sort of sympathetic politicians who kind of you know made it possible for cars to to take over the roads and passed laws that made it illegal to cross the street unless you were at a Signal, you know, jaywalking laws, which are still in force in a lot of American cities, began to kind of widen roads so that you know they took away space from 
pavements, the sidewalks, there's less space for people to walk and more space for the cars. And it was this kind of tremendously organized effort to push to change cities, to make them more amenable to vehicles. And it kind of, the same thing happened later, you know, in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s in large parts of Europe, not as dramatically as in America, I think, because people could already see some of the problems of it there. But it was not this kind of automatic thing of people went, oh, I've got a car. You know, it took effort. It took kind of deliberate plans and law changes to make it possible for cars to just get through cities and for more and more people to buy them. And that had real costs. Now, as you look at places that successfully reimagining the role of the car in their city, you give some examples of places like Amsterdam and Copenhagen and Tokyo in the book. What did you find that they shared in common that made it possible for them to cut back on car usage and to persuade people in the city that it was a good idea? Tokyo is, I think, is one that is a place that actually was never that taken over by the car. And Amsterdam is a place that really sort of in the 1970s, you know, began to kind of suddenly realize some of the problems it had with cars. So it was a big protest against children being killed and you know, worries about traffic. And Paris has obviously been doing it more recently. But I think what kind of does connect them together it's often actually a sort of fiscally conservative case in a way. It's a realization that cars and, and the amount of infrastructure that's needed for people to get around by them, that they're not very efficient for a city. You know, in the case of kind of Tokyo, you know, in the post-war era, they realized how, you know, they have very narrow streets in Japan. And when they were building roads, they realized that cars would use up a lot of space and that they would have to charge them. So they kind of had road tolls from the beginning and then restrictions on parking spaces from the beginning. And that's why cars, you know, while a lot of Japanese people do have cars, they were never adopted never became the dominant transport form somewhere like Tokyo. And I think if you look at Amsterdam, and actually Copenhagen's a good example, even more so than Amsterdam, it was really when the oil crisis happened in the 1970s, there was this kind of realization that using cars, having everybody driving was making countries kind of reliant on, you know, on things that it couldn't control, like the cost of oil. The cost of petrol could soar and it could make people much worse off. And so there was an attempt to kind of, you know, what began in Copenhagen was it began with kind of bans on cars at weekends, which is designed to save petrol. But then as people get their bicycles out, they realized, oh, do you know what? It's the cars that are stopping people using their bikes. And in Paris, there's had this rapid acceleration, of course, since the pandemic, which, you know, when people couldn't ride the metro and the city government realized that, you know, if you got all those journeys that were being done by public transport into cars, then the city would kind of grind to a halt. So they began to install bike lanes and things. So I think it's it's a realization actually of the economics of cars are not very positive that tends to drive sustained change. Cities that have succeeded are ones that realize they can be better off when they work in different forms of transport. Whereas I think the kind of attempts that fail are ones that sort of see bike lanes as a nice thing to have or public transport as a kind of a little thing to have on the side rather than fundamental as the way to do it. And that's often the problem in American cities is that they see bike lanes and, and public transport infrastructure as a sort of, yeah, a nice thing to have to do on the side. And so they do it in a kind of half-hearted way that actually isn't very useful. And then it becomes a self-fulfilling thing that people don't use it. You point out the examples of some US cities. You talk about Houston in the book, and I've been to Houston. We were in, we were in Dallas recently for a Monocle event. 
And the same thing struck me is, you know, when you're on the top of a tower looking down the city, there's just acre after acre of empty car parks. No way are you going to walk across those or cycle across those on your own at night. You're going to get in a car. And there, the reimagining of the city, the attempt to Copenhagenize it, as it were, just seems so formidable. You, you don't know how that would ever begin. Do you think there is really any kind of hope that a place as car-driven as that could be re-engineered to abandon the motor vehicle? I think it will be challenging to sort of reimagine use. And in fact, there's are people who are trying to think of ways to do it. I think in America, the big priority is actually that you do have these coastal cities and cities you know, like Chicago as well, these older cities that were not originally built for the car and not that long ago were not dominated by cars in the same way. And they still have the population density and the kind of the public transport bones, as it were, to be able to re-engineer them. And at the moment, those cities are so expensive to live in. You know, if you want to live in New York or you want to live in San Francisco, you know, in a neighborhood where you can walk around and you can rely on public transport, you pay such an extraordinary amount of money in rent because it's rare. And so I kind of think the big priority for American cities is basically making more of the Brooklyns and the Manhattans, you know, so that more people can choose to live and could afford to live in walkable cities. It's sort of upzoning and adding to those cities and changing neighborhoods that are already dense into even denser ones. But I think it is possible actually to change places like Houston and, and Los Angeles, I think is, you know, it's got a long way to go, but actually is beginning to change as a sort of very famously car-centric city. It has built public public transport. And I think they're now beginning to realize that to make that public transport, you know, usable, you also need to allow people to build homes and restaurants and shops and, you know, businesses around the stations rather than just having car park around the stations. And so they're beginning to change some of their zoning rules and things so that that can happen. And, you know, I've had friends who lived in LA and they they got by with one car as a family because one of them was able to commute to work on the expo line. And I think kind of there's actually a lot of possibility in the most sprawling, you know, car dependent American cities to make them places. You're not going to turn Houston into a place where you don't need a car at all. But I think you can make them into places where, you know, if you're a family, you only need one car rather than two, which is you know sometimes three if you've got teenage kids, which is the kind of standard now. I guess the danger with this argument is it puts all the onus on the user saying you're a bad person, you're getting in a car. Whereas even if the infrastructure is there for public transport in a city, we spoke to someone the other day in Los Angeles who said, look, I was trying to cycle around, I was trying to use public transport. But to be honest with you, the public transport at night was so terrifying. It just made me feel uncomfortable trying to get around on a bus late at night. So they had purchased a car because in the end, they decided that was the only way to get around Los Angeles. So you need lots of solutions in place, don't you, rather than just, as you say, building some nice bike lanes and things and hoping that will solve the problem. Unless you have the security issue in place, unless it feels safe for a a woman to walk home through the streets at midnight, then you'll never get people out of their cars. The security is actually an interesting one in America at the moment. There's a lot of concerns about public transport and the safety on public transport. And, you know, obviously the numbers of people using public transport dropped an awful lot in the pandemic. And I think the unfortunate consequences since is that, you know, a lot of people with mental health problems, a lot of people who don't have other options have drifted sometimes to transport systems as secure places to sleep or to stay. And that makes them you know, much harder to use for other people. And I think that's a real challenge right now for America in general. That's got to be taken quite seriously. And it's uh, 
the solution is not always just going to be get police on and take those people off. But I think it's a real challenge that I worry that a lot of American kind of cities are not taking seriously enough, precisely because I think there's sometimes a tendency in America to think of public transport as a service for poor people, as a social service, and not as a really important essential infrastructure for a city to sort of survive on. And, and sometimes that leads, I think, to a kind of a sense of, oh, well, we can't do anything about this. And, and actually, it does deter people from using the trains. One of the things that gives me hope, though, that there will be change are things like electric bicycles. And I think one of the things to remember is that people don't always want to use a car. And particularly, the cost of a car is so expensive in America now. The average American family is spending something like $11,000 a year, I think, running each vehicle. It's a large share of income. And so I think kind of everything you say, it is challenging, but people are really desperate for other options, especially for those kind of trips that are not your daily commute to work, as it were, that, that you feel like you're having to run a car for things that could be substituted. And one thing I keep hearing anecdotally, actually, from even in the suburbs is parents who've been buying electric cargo bicycles to pick up their kids from school, because kind of otherwise, you know, you currently a lot of American schools, you spend 20 minutes in a traffic jam, waiting to pick up your kids. And, and with an electric bicycle, you can just sort of rock up and pick them up. And those sorts of journeys are the, you know, the two or three miles that are a little too long to walk, but on a bicycle suddenly become kind of plausible with relatively modest changes. So I think it, I'm quite optimistic that some quite modest changes can happen. But I think you're right that, you know, right now it, it's not a People are not stupid. And when they buy cars, it's not because they're selfish or or wrong. Most of the time, they're sort of forced to by the environment that they're living in. And so I think it will take changes to that environment. But I do think that if you make quite modest changes, sometimes it will have quite a dramatic effect in how people respond. My thanks there to Daniel Knowles. And Carmageddon is out now, published by Penguin Random House. What defines a public space? These could be some of the most important democratic spaces in our cities where social justice, creativity, health and sustainability all come into play. But rapid urbanisation, accelerated development and privatisation of the built environment are all putting public spaces at risk. This is much of the thinking behind the new book Why Public Space Matters by the anthropologist Setha Lowe. Lowe is a distinguished professor of environmental psychology, geography, anthropology and women's studies and the director of the Public Space Research Group at the Graduate Centre, City University of New York. To find out how to protect public spaces and their importance to our lives, Monocle's Carlotta Rebello caught up with Lowe a little bit earlier and she started by asking her to define public spaces. Public space, for me, ideally, is a place where everyone can go, that is not restricted in access, and where there is a sense of publicness uh, coming together, the possibility of meeting strangers, which, as I've argued and demonstrated over the last 35 years, can really lead to better social relations, more liberal thought, greater creativity, greater flexibility, and flourishing for a society. But it includes a wide range of places that we often don't think of, the sidewalk, the street, 
of course, our parks and our beaches, but empty lots and libraries, institutions that are freely entered. These are all public spaces that make a difference. Public markets, for example, which we often don't think about, are places where, at least in the United States and in Latin America, that immigrants often first get their foothold. And public space when we usually think about it, we think about play and recreation and beautiful trees, but we need to remember it's a place of work where 60% of the world's workers are in the informal sector and they use public space as their workplace. So in my definition, public space is very broad. And then what I try to do in the book is try to also explain they're not all the same. They have different forms of ownership, different forms of governance, different kinds of rules and regulations. They have very different histories. Many are very large, others are very tiny. And all of these differences, when you look at them together, create very different spaces that we need to consider differently and compare differently and have different strategies for improving and making them the kinds of places we all want to be together. How much does geography and cultural context matters here? Let's take, for example, a small square of the same size transplanted to different parts of the world. Would that also, in effect, be a different type of space, depending exactly on the cultural context around it? That's a really excellent point, of course. I started becoming interested in public spaces living in Costa Rica and in Guatemala and seeing how squares there are the very center of social life. And those of you who live in Europe know that squares can be, in fact, microcosms of the entire society, that everyone's there doing very different things. And as a researcher, it was fantastic because you could see the entire culture sort of represented in that space. But I come from Los Angeles, which is a very suburban city without a big center, really. And the beach is a public space, and it doesn't work in the same way. And it's highly segregated. And there are not necessarily spaces where everyone comes together and where there is cultural support for everyone coming together. So depending on, of course, geography, but even more, I would say, as an anthropologist, the culture and the development of what I've called a public culture can make an incredible difference about whether public space is used, how it's used, and the context within which it occurs makes an incredible amount of difference. I wanted to ask you, though, about some of the benefits, I guess, of public spaces. And, you know, we've mentioned a few here that might be a bit more obvious or a bit more current, but perhaps some of the less obvious ones. What are some of these benefits that we can get as a society, as a person, from spending time in public spaces as you define them? There are so many benefits of public space that contributes to flourishing that I'm beginning to argue that if we designed our cities around public space, we really could create better cities. What does that mean? It means that public spaces contribute to sustainability, reduce heat islands, reduce pollution, create places that people can be for the environment. Public spaces 
offer, as you've already pointed out, a place for cultural continuity. They offer workplaces for people in the informal sector. They offer places of play and socialization and encourage creativity because it's a place where divergent thinking for kids can happen. And it has, of course, been well documented now that public spaces have a tremendous impact on health and well-being, both physical health and mental health. It offers a place to get away. It offers a place to exercise. And finally, and probably most importantly, as I said at the very beginning, it's a place where you can encounter strangers, people that you don't know. Just seeing strangers can have a liberalizing effect, can improve social relations in a period of time in which social relations have become politically and socially very strained. It is a place where democratic practices and social justice can actually be seen and where we can improve our social justice practices simply by being in public space, being comfortable enough in a particular kind of atmosphere of publicness that we can be together and begin to learn around each other. And I do want to say that what I'm trying to do in this book is not high in the sky. I'm saying the evidence is overwhelming at this point that public space has these positive attributes. They contribute to social justice, to democracy, to play, to socialization, to sustainability in ways that no other public institution does. And yet we are risking losing them. I think public space is a priority, is in question. And in developing cities, public spaces aren't being designed in. And in those cities where we live, say New York and London, many are being privatized in ways that do not allow lots and lots of people to use them. And this will be to the detriment of all of us. Would you say that that's one of the biggest existential threats at the moment for our public spaces in cities? And how would that translate like in terms of the way we are able to use them? It's been a threat for a while. There have been people writing for 30 years about the end of public space. That's not exactly what I'm saying. I don't know that public space is ending, but the spaces that we have are being increasingly surveilled and monitored. There is more and more control and rules and regulations so that they become very balkanized and separated. And then the threat of that is these aspects of flourishing all the way from health and sustainability to the social, cultural, social democracy parts of the argument, the playing together, the creativity, the liberalizing effects, we're losing that. And you can see it in our societies. What can be done to protect them? At the end of the book, I have a chapter on uh, something I call the tests. I'm an anthropologist. Anthropologists do ethnography. That means we study places by being there, by participating and observing and mapping and talking to people. But much of our method is there. And in there is a very simple version of what I do that I call the toolkit for the ethnographic study of space. And I encourage everyone 
residents, college students, you, myself, look at our own public spaces, study our own public spaces, determine if they are really producing the kinds of flourishing goods, if they're socially just, if people can access them, if people are coming together and having these multiple goods. I'm suggesting that we understand our own public spaces and begin to argue and fight for them. Just as we're fighting, neighborhoods are fighting to keep those streets open, I think all of us are responsible for maintaining the good that public space gives us. Space in a city like particularly New York or London or Paris, but also Rio de Janeiro, Buenos Aires, Nairobi, Space is at a premium and there's a lot of competition for it. And there are many other forces, commercial and economic forces, that would like to develop it. And there needs to be on the ground advocacy for our public space and a recognition that its loss is not trivial. Its loss is to the detriment of us all. And it's up to us. I really think it's up to citizens. And the reason I wrote the book, and I'm so glad we're talking about it, is to try to reach out to other urbanists, people caring about cities and say, here is a cornerstone, a foundational piece of having the kinds of cities that we really want. And losing those public spaces, not defending the ones we have, allowing development to erase many of the beautiful spaces we do have, including, say, gardens, you know, that's a big issue that community gardens make such a difference. This is something we all have to be responsible for. Nobody's going to do it for us. I wish government would, but the public sector has been shrinking as more and more private entities and public-private partnerships have taken over. So I, I'm saying to my fellow citizens and non-citizens and worldwide colleagues, it's up to us. You know, despite what we were talking at the beginning of our chat about the need to raise awareness and to make sure people who like cities, regardless if they work within city administration or not, are aware of the importance of public space, does that leave you with hope for public spaces in urban environments? Of course I'm hopeful. I wouldn't write <laughs> It's a seven-year project to write a book or eight. You have to be hopeful or you wouldn't write it. And I wrote it for a lot of people that I met through UN Habitat because there are activists all over the world taking back public space, little teeny pockets of space where kids can play and parents can come together. So yes, I'm absolutely hopeful. What I want to do is help them, give them support in what they do. In small cities and in small neighborhood projects, I really see activists making a difference. And this book, the tests I talked about, that toolkit, they can use to evaluate the space and say, look at how I've improved things. Interestingly enough, that's a really important thing to do. You get money from the government. You want to say you made a difference so that they continue to fund them. It's something we don't think about very much, but that's actually a very good use of the evidence in the book or the data. I'm really hopeful in Lima, there is a whole group, Take Back the Streets. There's some fantastic stuff going on. But in some of the very large cities, I look at Hudson Yards in New York City, the last little piece of public space, 22 acres that we had, that ended up being really access to a mall. And it's not for everyone. 
there are all kinds of subtle barriers to its use. It's heavily policed. It has huge numbers of rules. It doesn't offer activities or feel very welcoming unless you want to come to shop. So I'm hopeful, but I do worry that Hudson Yards is a model or could become a model for urban public space that I think would be very detrimental. I think there are lots of activists out there really taking back public space, taking back traffic islands, making their own plazas. And yet at the same time, I also see public government retreating from funding public space and using the public sector and the private sector companies, corporations who are involved in building new spaces and they have different goals in mind. And to me, that needs to be discussed and considered a threat or if not a threat, something that we need to be understanding so that we can continue to have the spaces that we want, not a kind of exclusive enclave like Hudson Yards, but something open and for everyone. The anthropologist Setha Lowe there in conversation with Monocle's Carlotta Ribello. Well, that's all from this week's episode of The Urbanist. For more from the world of urbanism, sign up to the podcast to get new episodes every week. And why not subscribe to Monocle magazine too? And you can do that at monocle.com. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Ribello and David Stevens. And David also edited the show with assistance from Mariella Bevan. And to play you out this week, well, here's Talking Heads with The Book I Read. Thank you for listening, City Lovers. City Lovers.